Welcome to Theology Talk. The goal is actually pretty simple. We just want to think God's thoughts after him. So if you have questions about what the Bible actually says, or you've got some fear, anxiety, and worry about what's happening in our world, and you want to know what God thinks so that you can think rightly and do rightly, this podcast is for you. In this episode, we're going to start our January reading for the story of Scripture in a year. I'm going to unpack how to read Genesis, how to understand it, what's actually happening within the culture and the context of the biblical narrative. And I'm going to share some patterns and themes that are extremely important as we see what's actually happening in Genesis is intended to help us make sense of what's happening in the rest of Scripture. Let's get started. Well, welcome to our very first month of reading the story of Scripture in a year. Uh, So this is essentially our chronological Bible reading plan. I wanted to start before we get into the month's reading and uh, the different books of the Bible that we're looking at, which we jump around just a little bit here, uh, and I'll give a little bit of orientation to that. Uh, But I want to start with maybe one of the biggest challenges that we're going to have as we read through the Bible. Um, This challenge is actually what's referred to as ethnocentrism. So um, having an ethnocentric reading of the scriptures is when you and I attempt to take our primary culture, our our lived experience, kind of what we know to be true about society and culture and politics and, and, and our lived experiences. And then we try to impose that into the biblical text. And so one of the things that we want to do right off the bat is just recognize that uh, God in his divine sovereignty, in his wisdom, in his providence, he determined and chose to write scripture, to have scripture written through human agents, uh, through individuals, humans that lived in space and time, which means that these individuals had a cultural context. They had a social background. They had a, their own lived experience, which also means that they had an initial intended audience or group of people that were uh the focus, the the goal, kind of like who they were being written to. And so one of the goals that we're going to have as we read through the Bible uh, throughout this year and look at this, this monthly approach to uh, the text is to really consider and slow down and to just wonder, okay, how did the ancient Hebrews, how did the ancient Israelites, how did uh, the people in the New Testament, the Greco-Roman time period, how did they first think about the world? How did they think about what was being told to them? How did they think about the Bible? Like By doing this, we're able to actually step into a context which gives us greater clarity and vision and understanding of the Bible itself. So I kind of want to start before we do anything else with a bit of an overview of the ancient Hebrews kind of understanding of how they read the Bible and how they uh, wrote these kind of pages in these words. And so the very first thing you're going to be like, Joel, this is absolutely uh, obvious, or maybe it's not obvious to you, but I think it is something very important that the Bible was not originally written in English. And so you and I may be very used to English words and English phrases. And um, we've come to understand the Bible uh, through the means, the medium that it was given to us. But incredibly important for us to recognize is the Bible wasn't originally written in English. Uh, The Old Testament was originally written in biblical Hebrew, um, some ancient Aramaic as well. And there are these Semitic languages that are uh, 
kind of all over the place in the ancient Near Eastern world that had an influence in the way that words, thoughts, and ideas uh, were constructed and put together. And so then the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. And, and Greek is kind of um, an important understanding for us as well because the Greco-Roman world, the Hellenistic culture, uh, was embedded into the language. And so all of this is really important as we come to the text and we're going to look at some details and, and we're going to look at original languages. So I'm going to take us to some of the uh, Hebrew or some of the Greek and we're going to try to get behind the words and the emphasis and the feeling uh, in the original intent of these words and then see, okay, how did uh, English translators, how did they translate these words and these phrases uh, for us to understand? So let me start with this. Um, when we open up the book of Genesis, and, and this is what you're going to do in your reading, uh, you're going to read through large uh, sections of scripture, large breadth and width of what's actually happening in the Bible. We're trying to trace the story of scripture from Genesis all the way through Revelation. Along the way, because I'm a Bible nerd, you're probably a Bible nerd as well, we're going to focus on little details, and that's great, but I want us to think big picture. Well, the first big picture idea is that uh, the ancient Israelites understood the world in a specific way. So they did not have our 21st century understanding of science and, um, and environment and, and constellations and stars and astrology. Like they didn't think of these things in the same way. They had their own particular context of how they understood it. I'm going to refer to this as we continue to go through the months as their understanding of cosmic geography. What this means is that the, the ancients, they understood the Bible. Uh, they understood their world that they lived, not separated as you have spiritual over here and earthly over here. There was actually a spiritual and an earthly understanding that was combined together in one holistic understanding. And so there was not division, but there was actually connection when it came to the way that the world ran in light of a supernatural worldview. Now, you're probably wondering, whoa, we're going to go all the way there in the very beginning Yes, we are, because it's vitally important for us to understand the book of Genesis and all the rest of the books of the Bible underneath the context and the framework of cosmic geography. So let me just give us a couple things that we need to understand about cosmic geography. And, and this actually shows up in the very first two sentences of uh, Genesis. So um, the earth was, and if you look at your Bible, I've got mine right in front of me. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. I'm reading from the CSB uh, day by day chronological Bible. And the phrase that the CSB translators use here is formless and empty. Now there's a Hebrew phrase underneath this behind it. And the Hebrew phrase is Toho va boho. And so uh, we get formless and empty. This Hebrew phrase also has in mind waste and wilderness. So instantly what you have is a cosmic understanding of the earth and its original status. And what the author here is trying to do, which traditionally we believe the Genesis and the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, were written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so what we believe is actually happening here is not necessarily to um, show us uh, identically, like uh, individually, uh, the creative order here, but to paint a picture of what God is doing in creation. And what God is doing in creation is consistently bringing order to the chaos. So massive theme here. 
order to chaos. So why is there the presence instantly of the Toho Vaboho, of the wasteland and the wilderness? Well, because these are themes that are going to be present all throughout Genesis and in fact, all the way through Revelation that we need to be paying attention to. That in the midst of chaos, in the midst of wasteland, in the midst of, of wilderness, there's a good God who takes chaotic reality, dysfunctional reality, and in and through him, he brings order. And so notice the very next sentence, what's happening. The spirit of God is hovering over the earth. Now, what happens in Genesis 1 and 2? We have the creation story. We have a ordering of the disorder to bring peace or shalom. I'm going to jump to John chapter 1 because John chapter 1 is actually a narrative, I would call it a commentary on Genesis chapter 1. If you trace the language, you find a lot of similarity. But the main idea here is that in John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the word. The word we understand to know is Jesus. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Notice this. It says, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. This is vitally important. Again, I want us to get used to hearing echoes inside of scripture. And so in the beginning, you have Toho Vaboho, you have wasteland and wilderness, you have the spirit of God that is hovering over the waters. We're going to talk about this in just a second. And then in John 1, we have this indication that actually Jesus was in the very beginning when created order takes place. Why is this? Because God is triune. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three are present and active prior to. They're they're un um, they're eternal. They're coexisting. They have always been. They're, they have no beginning. They have no end. This is what the triune God is. And in the very beginning of creation, you have their presence. And in fact, John lets us know in Jesus is the cause, the source, the sustaining power of all of creation. Okay, it gets uh, really interesting after this because, again, I'm going to just give you a little bit of a teaser of what we're going to get throughout these 12 months. Uh, it says the spirit hovers over these waters. And so um, in the ancient world, the waters, the sea, was actually a place of chaos and destruction. And so I want you to keep in the back of your mind that when you're reading through the Bible and you see big bodies of water, that the ancient Israelites, they're not thinking, hmm, today would be a great day for us to jump on a boat and take a, a day boat trip. Like that's not their immediate understanding of the big, vast bodies of water. Their immediate understanding is like, yo, this is the place that the Leviathan, the sea dragon, sea monster lives. Like this is the place of chaos. This is the place of destruction. In fact, again, the supernatural and earthly worldview coming together. Um, the ancients believed that the, the watery depths was the gateway for, um, the supernatural spirits, the, uh, disembodied spirits to come in and out of earth. I mean, this is, this is scary. Who wants to go to the gateway of where spirits came in and out of um, earth? Like, like that's wild, right? And so what's happening here? You've got the spirit of God hovering over the waters. But what happens in the New Testament? Jesus is in a boat on the Sea of Galilee where a storm comes. What does Jesus do? He calms the storm. Jesus um, is on a sea again, and he walks on water. Well, what is this all showing us? It's all showing us this big thematic idea that God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, is consistently bringing order to the chaos of the world. That Jesus is superior to all created things. 
that um, Jesus walks on the water itself. Uh, this is pretty fascinating. Uh, and so we've got this sense of cosmic geography that's taking place. And in fact, Genesis chapter one, two, and three, that's what's actually taking place. I want to give us just a um, little visual example of this. So I'm going to do a screen share. And as I screen, uh, share the screen, what you're going to find is that the ancient Israelites had a very specific understanding of how the world worked. And so this is the ancient Hebrew conception of the universe. Uh, this comes from the Faith Life Study Bible. It's actually a free digital study Bible. So if you're trying to um, go to a place that has some free resources, some in-depth articles, Faith Life Study Bible is an excellent place and it's got epic, incredible infographics like this. So notice what you have here. You've got the great depths, right? So um, the, the great depths are understanding this is kind of the sea. And so the sea is this place of um, danger. It's this place of chaos. Uh, and notice where God is. Yahweh is up here. Uh, and he is uh, above the highest heavens and he rules over all things. Uh, this uh, becomes kind of, uh, kind of interesting because you also have the uh, water above the firmament, uh, which the Noah flood is going to get really interesting. You've got the sun, you've got the moon, you've got the stars. But notice uh, a very key uh, visual geographical component here. You've got mountains. You've got mountains. I'm going to talk about all these things here in a second. And then the ancient Hebrews understood that the underworld, that the place of the dead, was Sheol. Now, we'll get into uh, this a little bit later, but but basically Sheol was um, had kind of two two compartments to it. In the New Testament, um, there's this story about Abraham's bosom that actually unpacks this a bit. But um, the two areas of this would be the one, the one location would be where uh, the righteous dead live. And the other location would be the depths of Sheol, which is where um, like Tartarus or think of where the bondage would be for um, the rebellious angels of Genesis 6 um, and where the unrighteous would go. And so this is a conception. This is a basic understanding how the ancient Israelites understood um, the, the way that the world was ordered geographically. Now, again, important, there's mountains here. So mountains were, in the ancient Hebrew understanding, the place where God met with man. And so where mountains are, you have the capacity, the potential to be in communion with God. This is why altars are often built on mountains. This is why Eden is actually located on a mountain. This is why Moses goes up to Mount Sinai in order to hear from God. Mountains are very, very important. Now, um, what is the absence of mountains? The absence of mountains are plains. As you are reading, you're going to notice that the plains show up a, a couple times, specifically the plains of Shinar. Why uh, in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, why is this so important? Because plains don't have mountains. And if the plains don't have mountains, how in the world is humanity going to uh, relate to and talk with God? 
we've talked about this already. You've got the sea. So the sea is the place of chaos and destruction. If you're reading through Job, um, we get into a little bit of Job this month. You will notice that the Leviathan takes a big role in the narrative of Job. Like there's this epic sea monster, the sea dragon that lives in the um, ocean that could take you out. And yet God is superior and supreme even over Leviathan. And then the last thing here is Sheol. So this is the place where the dead in the Old Testament are gathered. Uh, again, the Hebrew conception of Sheol is that there's two locations, one for the unrighteous and the other for the righteous. And uh, we find this kind of concept and this idea of the underworld or Sheol in Genesis chapter 49, 29 uh, through 30. And so uh, you find, um, yeah, the, the basic understanding of how the uh, world would be ordered um, by the ancient Hebrew understanding. So when you get into this first month's reading, I want you to just kind of pay attention to these main figures, these main ideas, mountains, plains, um, the sea, and then the reference to the underworld or the place where my ancestors are gathered, or um, it will just say Sheol. Uh, Sheol. Uh, so, here, so here's the, the second thing that we find in this month. Uh, and again, these are so fundamental that we're gonna actually see them all the way throughout scripture, but it's connected to this first month of reading. There is consistently this tension of a pattern of seeing something that you should not have, wanting it, taking it, and then the chaos that comes from it. Um, so this actually is a reversal of the pattern of God who look at just read Genesis one and see how many times this repetitive phrase and, and God saw that it was good, that it was good, that it was good. And God saw, God saw that it was, it was good. So initially you have the first understanding of seeing something that is good and participating in the good that God gives us. But this turns upside down when humanity sees something that is good, but God has determined that they should not have. And in idolatry and rebellion, they take from it. So this idea of seeing and taking starts actually in Eden with Eve. But this is so wild and so fascinating. The same idea is restated so many times throughout this month's reading um, throughout January. So here's some examples. We had Eve and Eden. But you also have in Genesis 6, which most people want to skip over because it's this weird passage about the Nephilim and the sons of God. In fact, I have a, a more in-depth video that goes into why I would hold that the sons of God are not human rulers. They're actually um, the sons of God are uh, angelic beings. They are part of the divine council of God. And so I'll link to that video um, right over here somewhere. And so you can kind of check that out for more study. But in Genesis 6, you've got the sons of God who take, who see that the daughters of men are good, and they take the daughters of man. Um, based on some other Hebrew language of seeing and taking and how often these two words are used together in the context in which they're used together, I'm going to talk about one here in a second. There's a really good chance I would personally hold to that what's actually happening in Genesis 6 is supernatural beings and the daughters of man. And the case here is abuse. It's actually a, um, a scene of unvoluntary, uh, like, 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 uh, like forcing your way to take something uh, of your own means, of your own power, of your own accord. This is absolutely negative in context. Um, the same idea, right, of see and take shows up with Lot in the land of Zor in Genesis 13. Again, a fascinating chapter where Moses actually gives us indications to, in our brain, think back to the Garden of Eden because it actually says in the text that this land was beautiful. It was just like the, the land of God's garden and um, it was beautiful. It was plentiful. 
plentiful like Egypt. So in this one setting, what Moses does for us is like, hey, remember, look back to Eden. What went wrong back there? And look forward to Egypt. There's going to be a time where Egypt looks beautiful, but it's going to actually become the place of our imprisonment. And so we have that in Genesis 13 with Lot. Um, there's so many more. Sarah, uh, the story of Sarah, she sees Hagar is pregnant and she acts in an animosity with her. And then in a reversal to this idea, Hagar realizes that she is, in fact, the one who is seen by God. This is Genesis 16, verse 13. Hagar says to God, um, you're El Roy. I have seen the one who sees me. And so we have these patterns that are in place of negativity. And then every now and then, God kind of does this, um, this kind of juke on us where all of a sudden we're like, whoa, we didn't expect that because God is consistently redeeming and reversing and, and bringing us back to the right way, the right order that he has for us. And then we get a really negative, horrific one, Genesis 34, 2, where Shechem, he sees and takes Dinah. And so this is obviously a case of rape and it's horrific. Um, and another one is that uh, the brothers of Joseph see him coming from a distance and take him in order to ultimately destroy him. But interestingly, in a reversal, Joseph in Egypt sees his brothers coming. The brothers are blinded. They can't see who Joseph is, but Joseph sees them. And in order to deliver them, he actually takes them and he saves them, Genesis 37. Um, and so again, there's this pattern here of seeing something that is beautiful, desiring and wanting it, and then taking your own power, your own means, um, your own ability, and taking that thing by force. With this pattern, there's also a sub-theme that's constantly being played out. Humanity attempts to take things into their own hands where there is unbelief in regard to the promise they actually received from God. Um, you have examples like Abraham who attempts to keep himself and Sarah safe by lying and saying she is his sister. In Genesis 30, Rachel sees what she didn't have, an heir or a child, and took things into her own hands. Um, you have, uh, even as a really crazy side note, uh, a reversal in the story of Lot and the angelic visitors. The evil people, they come to Lot's house when they see these angelic visitors. They attempt to take them, but instead they're struck blind for their evil as a divine punishment. Again, remember, there's this reversal that takes place. And then the last kind of sub-theme underneath this is the tension of a barren womb. This is an anticipation for us as we're reading about all these stories about these women that are unable to have children, but have this great promise to be fruitful, to multiply, to, to have great descendants, that there's this empty womb. And then God steps in miraculously to give birth and give life where there seems to be no life. Um, this is an anticipation that is embedded for us to see the miraculous conception that happens with Christ in the New Testament. Um, we've looked at Sarah already, but let's look at, uh, look at an echo with her firstborn son, Isaac, in Genesis 22. The firstborn is spared and a scapegoat is provided. But y'all, this is just an echo of when Jesus would come, the firstborn of God. Jesus would be sent as an atoning sacrifice. In and through the atonement, he claims victory as king over sin and death. So there's an exchange that takes place where Jesus gets our unrighteousness and we get his righteousness. Jesus is um, the greater Isaac that uh, that God spared Isaac, but Jesus, his own son, is sent as uh, an exchange that's taking place. Now, as we're going through this month, 
I want you to also look at the development of themes, the, the development of themes. So a, a couple of them that are very important. One is the focus on the family. There's an absolute focus on the household and the family of God. Um, why is this so important? Eden is a garden household of God. Eden is on a mountain. God is a good father. He has children. He actually has um, a family, a divine council uh, that uh, is present in Eden. This is why it makes sense for supernatural beings to be in Eden and then uh, for Adam and Eve to be deceived by that. Like they would, this would have been common that in Eden, supernatural beings would be in and out. We find presence of this also with the garden cherubim that are placed at the consequence after the fall outside of, of Eden. It was normal for God to walk in Eden, Genesis chapter 3. This whole idea, and, and what I would suggest is the theme that actually ties all the other sub-themes together inside of the story of Scripture is this basic fundamental summary. God is a good dad who wants to have his family back together. God is a good father who wants to have his family back together. And consistently throughout scripture, we're finding how God acts in order to bring reunification and restoration and reconciliation for his family, for those who in humility would turn away from their sin and turn towards God. So you've got this consistent idea of family and the family ought to be beautiful. It ought, ought to multiply. It ought to spread out. Eden is a garden home. Abram has to leave a family so that he can gain a much larger family. And there's this theme consistently connected to family of being barren to being fruitful. And all of these themes are framed within the context of family. The second massive theme that is always showing up is this idea of famine. Famine is always a time of need. Uh, for Abraham, it was a time of need. For Isaac, it was a time of need. For Jacob and Joseph, it was a time of need. Famine shows up in biblical history. Uh, as a type of indication and reminder of our weakness and our inability. In the presence of famines, we have famine, the people have to look elsewhere to find support and security and strength and stability. And so famine shows up in biblical history, particularly in this first months of reading, like you're going to see famine everywhere. And every time famine shows up, God is there. He is in the midst of the people. Another fascinating idea that God goes into exile with his family. That yes, Adam and Eve get kicked out of Eden, but as they get kicked out of Eden, God actually goes out into exile with them. We're going to actually see this as we get through the minor prophets as well, that God is a God of presence. And even if we can't have full presence, like how it was always intended in Eden, he's still going to make sure that we can feel his goodness, that we're safe and that we're protected. Um, and so God is a God who actually goes into exile with his people. So you've got famine. And then the, the last one is covenant last one is covenant. And the big idea for covenant is that covenant is actually framed once again within the context of family. And we find covenant um, established actually with um, Adam. You have a covenant established with Noah. You have a covenant established with Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. And the way that these covenants are established is that there is a, um, a requirement that has to happen, that God would say, I promise to do this in response to your hum humble response and living up to the standards of this covenant. So in the place where there is a exchange of responsibilities, this is what in the ancient world people would refer to as a bilateral covenant. 
However, there are certain situations where God establishes of his own accord a unilateral covenant, where regardless of the action that he is in covenant with, God is going to remain faithful. Uh, one of these is, again, the promise, the covenant to establish his family, to bring his family back together. Even in the midst of the unfaithfulness of the people of God, God is faithful. And in a unilateral way that God himself is only able to do, he is always faithful, which keeps that covenant um, responsibility intact. Um, and then uh, just a couple kind of notable um, events we find in Genesis 14 is this uh, this odd phrase, sad passage, where Melchizedek, this king, shows up. Now, in Hebrew, the name Melchizedek, it means righteous king or king of righteousness, and he shows up in Genesis 14. Uh, Melchizedek is referenced again in Psalm 110, and uh, he appears as the king of Salem. You want to think Jerusalem here. Now, he also happens to be a high priest of God. We're all like, what in the world is happening with Melchizedek? Um, just so you know, the ancient Israelites would have been shocked. Even modern is, uh, or even like um, later in biblical history, the Israelites of the time of the um, United Kingdom, the divided kingdom, and even the Israelites in exile, like they would have been shocked to find a king who is also a high priest. This never happens. Like the last time we have a king who is also a type of high priest, who is also a type of prophet is actually Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. There are types of prophets, priests, and kings. They function in all of those roles. After the fall, these, these, this, these, um, relationships and responsibilities are fractured and they go to individual people. So you have a king, you have a prophet, and you have a priest. But in Genesis 14, you have Melchizedek, who is a high priest and king. Well, what is happening? Um, uh, well, we're left with a lot of silence when it comes to the details surrounding Melchizedek. Um, for instance, how in the world does this king come about ruling the promised land of Canaan? How does he become a priest of the Most High God? Also, where in the world does his story begin and how does it end? He doesn't show up in any genealogy. Think about this. Think about the poetic framework, the, the literary type that's happening here. Essentially, this Melchizedek has no beginning and no end. Where else do we find this image? Do we find this idea? Is it possible? I think it is very possible that Melchizedek is placed in Genesis 14, again, as a type of um, Christ, as a indication of what is to come, that Jesus would be our faithful high priest, that Jesus would be our faithful king, that Jesus would be um, our, our just and holy prophet who comes to mediate God's kindness to us. And the way that he does it, the way that Jesus does it, is uh, through the cross. And this is absolutely important. The structure of uh, this kind of first month's reading is this journey to the promised land, to the journey of Canaan. And Canaan ends up becoming the focal point of biblical history, the focal point of the story of Scripture pretty consistently, right? Have you ever wondered why Canaan? What is so special about Canaan? Um, I actually uh, found some very, very interesting uh, things by an Old Testament scholar, Sandra Richter, in her book, The Epic of Eden, which I would highly, highly recommend. Um, but again, let me just do uh, one more screen share so you guys can really get um, a grasp of the importance of the promised land of Canaan because it shows up, Canaan shows up everywhere. I mean, this is where Abraham is going to, right? Right. 
um, look here. Um, so what you find here is Canaan is right over here. But I want you to pay attention to also the, the land masses or the nations that surround Canaan. On the one side, you have Egypt. And then connected to Egypt, you've got like all of this on the opposite side of Canaan. You've got Mesopotamia. Look at this. You've got Assyria. We know that name comes up later. Babylonia. We know that name comes up later. Um, you've got, uh, I mean, um, Haran, which is where uh, that and Ur of the Chaldeans is where Abram comes, comes from. Uh, but notice this. Smack in the middle of these massive nations that gain power at different times in biblical history, you find uh, this part of land, Canaan. And this ends up being the tension spot between the nations. Um Canaan is incredibly important. Canaan served as the only land bridge between the two great civilizations of the ancient Near Eastern world. On the one side we talked about already, you have Mesopotamia. And on the other side, you have Egypt. Any military activity or trade that would have been exchanged between these two kingdoms had to pass through Canaan. So these larger kingdoms are massively, massively interested in controlling this territory, this land, because it actually serves as a buffer and also a path for trade between these two places. Here's an interesting thing about Canaan, uh, about this land prior to extinction because of incredible uh, intensive hunting, different types of animals showed up in this little parchment of land. You had anything from lions, tigers, bears, antelopes, wild oxes, deers, ostriches, crocodiles, and hippos could be found in this land. Now, again, I just want you to keep that in the back of your mind because this makes sense when you're reading through Proverbs or Psalms or the book of Job and you're like, kind of like, where did they, all these animals come from? Like, how is this possible? Well, it makes sense if we have a geographical understanding of Canaan, ancient world, where there's evidence of these types of animals that were kind of all over the place. And so um, I hope that all this information is helpful for you as you begin to read through the book of Genesis. I'm just going to go through my notes really quick uh, to point out anything that I found that um, was super important uh, in here. So like I said, we have to get a good grasp of the cosmic geography that's taking place, that the theme that connects everything together is this theme of household. Um, and you've got this repetitive idea of um, people that see something that's beautiful, long for it, desire it, but then take it uh, a force. And so there is this reversal of God's uh, creating of all things that are beautiful and then giving it to Adam and Eve in order for them to steward and to maintain. Uh, the last thing that I'll just talk about uh, quickly uh, here as we 
wrap up our time together, and this is going to become very important for the months leading up, is that I mentioned Eden, and I mentioned the very beginning of cosmic geography and how we are to understand that the Bible is written, um, the ancient Israelites understood that the Bible was not separated or their lives were not separated into the spiritual over here and the physical over here, but they were connected together. Um, Eden was the location where God held counsel. And so one of the things, again, to, that we are going to have to consistently fight against is this understanding of God that um, is not reflective of an ancient Near Eastern understanding of God as king. So think about a king. What does a king have? A king has a council. And as part of that council, there are various people that have responsibilities and duties. And so um, what's happening here? in uh, Genesis all the way through Revelation. And what's happening as we're studying scripture is uh, we're learning more about this good king. We're learning more about how this king, though he could do everything on his own, though he doesn't need anything, in his kindness and compassion and his mercy, he chooses to have a family. And his desire is always for that family to be together. So that family could live out the vocation that they are given, though, so that family could be um, faithful, reflective agents of God's image and of his kindness out and into the world. Um, and so we're going to talk about the divine counsel of God in Psalm 82. And then um, next month was we get into the book of Job, because I know we started Job this month, but... Um, Every now and then you see this phrase, the sons of God, who are the sons of God? Again, I said the sons of God are angelic beings. They're part of God's divine counsel. There's a subset of these sons of God that go into total rebellion. And as they go into rebellion, they get kicked out of the council. And these, um, these beings, these supernatural beings, are what Paul refers to in the New Testament as powers, principalities, and authorities. These beings are the background of the Old Testament of the, uh, the false gods of the nations. These are the beings that lead the nations astray that actually uh, lead attempt to lead Israel astray so many times. These are the same ancient malevolent spiritual beings that are active in our world today. They're trying to disunify the family of God. They're trying to distract us from the vision and the mission and the command that God gave us in order to redeem and to restore and to reconcile the world back to Christ. Think of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and the ministry of reconciliation, that God in his kindness um, chose you and I to be the representatives of Christ, that Christ would be making his appeal in and through us so that the world might see um, that they are not lost, that they're not forgotten, that they're not abandoned. But in fact, that they have a place to belong, and that place to belong is in the family of God. And yet there is a requirement. There is a process in which we are restored and brought back into the household of God. And that process is through authentic, general repentance of, of switching our allegiance from the kingdom of darkness into the, the kingdom of light, and then living out as faithful citizens of the kingdom of God as we live in a time and a season as sojourners and strangers, as exiles in a land that is not our own. But we await the coming king who is going to bring his kingdom as we in the future will enjoy the new heavens and the new earth. So there's a lot that we didn't get to cover, but hopefully this is a good big framework for you um, as you are reading through uh, this month's reading to give you a grasp and to um, just help you kind of piece all of these details together. I cannot wait for next month. We'll see you soon. 